the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, I'm Jerry Boyer. I'm talking today with Peter Thiel. Peter is many things, author of Zero to One, um, which I read, reread um, in preparation for this interview. He's the founder of PayPal, early investor in uh, Facebook, earliest investor, outside investor in Facebook, early investor in um, SpaceX uh, and LinkedIn. He's an entrepreneur and he's an investor. And I think you're going to find during this interview that um, he's somebody whose knowledge is far broader than technology and entrepreneurship. First of all, Peter, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on your program. You know, you um, gave a speech at the King's College um, on All Hallows' Eve 2017, uh, um, the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And you said, we read the Bible, but in a very almost more real way, the Bible reads us. What did you mean by that? Well, it might take a while to unpack, but... um... But there's always, um, you know, there's always uh, probably a conceit that we are above the Bible, that we are above the Revelation, that it's something that happened in the past, and um, and uh, and of course, if it's if it's true, then um, it must in some sense be above us or ahead of us or 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 uh, still tell us something something about the future. Um, you know, I I was very influenced by uh, by Rene Girard as a you know as an undergraduate uh, and uh, and, uh, and and ever since um, this uh, French uh, intellectual, I think in, in some ways you know perhaps one of the more important uh, Christian thinkers of the of, of the late twentieth century, and um, Girard always uh, you know thought that um, he, he did a lot of work. You know, he always said that. Uh, in, in, in you know, there's been a lot done in Christianity and theology, you know, the nature of God. But uh, if, if it's true, if the Bible is true, it must also contain an anthropology. It must tell us something about the nature of, of man, um, something that we, we would not otherwise know. And, um, and for Girard, it had to do with, uh, with sort of, uh, you know, violence, uh, the way in which um, human sin is deeply conflictual, deeply, uh, deeply violent, and, and deeply obfuscated. And, uh, and, uh, and that, uh, you know, the city of man is built on, on hidden victims. And, uh, and you know, you, you did a lot on sort of comparative mythology. And so you take something like the myth of Romulus and Remus versus the story of Cain and Abel. They're very similar stories. One of those Romulus and Remus' the story about the founding of Rome, the greatest city of the ancient world, Cain and Abel is the founding, maybe, of the first city in the history of the world, and um, and the uh, you know they're parallel stories, but the perspective is different. the uh, The Roman story, like like all of mythology, takes the point of view 
of the city of the human community of Romulus and says that you know the murder of Remus is justified. It's a founding murder, but it's it's uh, it's it's justified, and uh, this is you know this is what you have to do. And then the uh, the even at the beginning of the Bible, even at the start of Genesis, the Bible takes the side of of of, of Abel, whose blood blood cries from the ground, and uh, takes the side of the of, of the of the victim. And in some ways, that's uh, that's sort of the this explosive potential in in Christianity that uh, you know, gets developed, you know, through Israel, through Moses, through the prophets, and then um, brought uh, brought to its culmination with with, with Christ, and uh, and then this this revelation has continued through the last two thousand years of Christian history, and, and and still powerfully animates our time. Christ puts himself in continuity with Abel, even. Um, thanks to Jimmy, who sent over some quotes from the woes of the Pharisees that yes. Rene Girard had um, uh, had cited in a lecture. This generation will have to answer for the blood of all the prophets shed since the since the foundation of the world. We can talk a little bit about what that means since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, and Jesus is predicting that he's going to be killed. Um, so. He is in that line from A to Z, um, from Abel to Zechariah. Yes, so there's there's certainly some sense of continuity, and there's also some discontinuity, where um, where um, you could say uh, that Abel to Zechariah were relatively innocent, but not absolutely innocent. And so, you know, you know, the Orthodox Christian context, which Gerard would not have questioned, they were still under original sin. And so, you know, in some sense, they were scapegoats, but then in some sense, perhaps, um, you know, they, they had not been perfect human beings. And so you couldn't say they were, they were absolutely innocent. And so there is, there is a way in which Christ is continuous with that line, but then there is also a way in which he is, uh, he is radically unique. He is, uh, he is completely innocent. And, um, and in some sense, the, uh, the human community is 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 completely uh, completely guilty in, in in the case of Christ, and so there's yeah, it's it's both. Well, he's monogamous, right? He's only begotten. Abel isn't, and Abel doesn't resurrect. Abel is not resurrected. Abel is replaced by Seth, Sate, right? Appointed. Um, Jesus is not replaced. He's he's raised, right? Um, which is the vindication. Which doesn't play a big role in Gerard in most of Gerard's writing, I guess, because he's writing from within an anthropological context rather than from within a theological context. Well, Gerard would always stress that uh, there's some way in which the crucifixion and the resurrection are are separate events. You know, there there are three days separating them, and so um, even though there are all sorts of ways in which they're linked, and you know, you know, obviously, if Christ hadn't died, he wouldn't have been able to be resurrected. They're, um, they're, they're somewhat, he, he, Gerard wanted to stress the discontinuity of those, those two events in a way where, um, where the, the crucifixion was, um, you know, even if um, there was something providential or there's some way in which God could bring something good out of this, it was at its core an evil act and a, a, a fundamentally bad thing. And then, um, you know, and then the resurrection was something, something very separate. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, truth had departed from the world for those three days. And so 
when when Peter when Peter um, denies Christ, the threefold denial, the human community has closed in on itself. There is no truth left in the world, mm. and this is very very different from let's say the death of Socrates, which is sort of the the classical counterpoint where you know Plato um, and Xenophon both you know write these apologies for Socrates and defend Socrates, and they pretend that philosophy always preserved the truth. Hmm. That, uh, that um, and you could say that the gospel story, it's many things, but it, among one of, the, one of the things it is, it is also a deconstruction of the Platonic Socratic story. Um, you know, the, the gospels tell us that, that Peter ran away, like everybody, even, even the person whom the church was founded, was, you know, there was no, the, would run away, and it tells us what Plato did. When, you know, when Socrates died, he wasn't he wasn't uh, preaching philosophy. He was somewhere running away, hiding at best. And the lie that philosophy tells us is that it's it's somehow strong enough to to preserve hmm. the truth, you know, in this purely naturalistic, uh, rationalistic sort of way. Which isn't in the in the Socratic dialogues, right? We don't see the disciples of Socrates running away. You get the they try to create the impression that Socrates speaks. He does his philosophy thing, and Plato just, all right, thank you, master, and just goes on and keeps philosophizing. Yeah, that, that it's it, it, it can it, it can act in a way that's 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 quite autonomous. And uh, I mean, this is always a you know a theological problem in Christianity, where um, or theological issue, where if if you say that everything was in the classics, that was in you know in the Judeo Rome in the sorry in the Greco Roman tradition that you have in the Judeo-Christian, it's, there's always a question, you know, why do you need it at all? What does the revelation tell us that we couldn't, you know, already know? And so, uh, and, and so on the level, and what Gerard wanted to say was even on the level of knowledge, um, there were things we could not humanly know. They had to be revealed, and, and one of them was, you know, the absolute innocence of Christ. You, I, I've heard you refer to this as key knowledge, um, so in the, the tradition that you're alluding to somewhat negatively, Plato and Aristotle basically had almost all of it figured out. They, we just needed a little extra to go to heaven. Um, but you have a Logos, and the Logos is the second person of the Trinity. So they were really close to it. That, that's that story. And I think that's imposed on the Areopagus you know, discourse. Um, and... I, I think what you're suggesting, what Gerard is suggesting and you're suggesting is that it's mostly subverting the pagan story, including the Socratic Platonic story. Yes. Which really was just a, 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 a while, a, while pretending that it's demythologizing was just creating another mythology, a more intellectually respectable mythology than Zeus raping, you know, um, some poor maid. Um, but it, But in essence, the gospels are... They're not just turning the pagan myths upside down. They're turning Platonism, Aristotelianism, the whole project upside down. Yeah, so I, Gerard would always stress the, 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 more the discontinuity between mythology and, uh, and Christianity. And, and you, have certainly, you have certainly a lot of, you know, um, you know, of the great medieval theologians like Aquinas who tried to um, synthesize the two. And Gerard would say that we should, we should also... Perhaps stress some of the differences and some of the ways in which um, which um, Christianity was was radically different. And then, of course, on a on a cultural level, um, and you know, even, you know, may, maybe there were a few idiosyncratic people who could sort of figure some stuff out, and they were too scared to tell anybody about it, and sort of say, what what did that what did that really matter? 
but um, you know uh, when um, you know the the idea of a victim, the idea that that victims exist is you know is is a it, it comes from Judeo Christianity and nowhere else. You know if you if you sort of imagine Christ in the time of Pontius Pilate, if he had told Pilate, you know I am a victim, this would have made no sense whatsoever. You know, Pilate would have said, "No, are you a Roman citizen or not?" And you know, um, and uh, the the idea that you were a victim made made no sense at all. And uh, and Gerard would claim that this was, you know, gradually as the Christian story became internalized, as it became the basis for you know a Christian culture in the Middle Ages, it was partially Christian, partially not. But um, um, you, you gradually got got the society, and then you know you you, you get to you get to all sorts of ways where you know it's it's uh, it's it's um, maybe deformed, maybe gone crazy in, in modernity, where you know we are we talk about victims and uh, and nothing nothing else. Hi everyone! If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. When, when you say, Christ, if Christ had said to Pilate, I am a victim, that would, would have meant nothing to Pilate, um... I, th- I think you're talking about a situation where Christ would would have allegedly been invoking his victimhood as a sta- as having moral status. If you said it's a mob dynamic, it's I'm the scapegoat. I'm the victim. Yeah, you you, you yeah. could not you could not say that. And uh, and what Gerard would claim is that uh, when when people started to think of different classes of people as victims, you know, maybe already in the Middle Ages, maybe you know, um, you know, uh, and then you know as as the centuries progressed. Um, it was it was actually always interpreting it through this 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 sort of Christian story. So Jesus uh, creates the, the actually the gospel accounts create this idea that the victim can be innocent, um, and suggest that these humans this thousands and thousands of of years of human sacrifice these victims were innocent maybe not perfectly innocent but they were innocent of the chart they weren't witches they, they were witches. they were relatively innocent and. Um, and uh, and then, but more more disturbingly, that the uh, the human community was relatively guilty, mm. and it always has been a you know a, a way in which atheist philosophers in the, in the Enlightenment thought that you know Christianity was uncomfortable because it blamed humans for too many things. You had you know you had the noble savage and the state of nature, or you know you know or sort of just all sorts of ways that if humans were you know you know um um left to themselves, they would just be, be, be wonderful. Um, you can just, you know, put children in, in a kindergarten, it would be like some return to the Garden of Eden or some, something like that. And there were sort of all these 
uh, and, and there was some way in which Christianity said this was always not quite true. Because the community was built on killing the innocent victim. And it told lies about that. It told lies that said that the victim was innocent or that the, the, the victim was guilty and that the community was innocent. And then as those lies, you know, have gradually unraveled, you know, we had we had this uh, we sort of got to uh, this 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 very very strange late modern world world we're living in now. Mm. Gerard always thought of um, uh, Nietzsche as 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 sort of a strange philosopher who is somehow extremely close to the truth of Christianity. Because uh, you know what Nietzsche always says is you know Christianity is this belief for slaves. It's 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 this uh, it's this thing that people who have victims for whom things hasn't gone well in life. They like to explain, and we need to go back to this sort of harsher, more pagan world in which we have no problem with sacrificing humans, or, and we we don't we're not so sentimental, and and all these things. And uh, and 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 Gerard would claim that yeah, perhaps Nietzsche understood almost better than anyone in the 19th century that uh, that Christianity had subverted you know all of the values of of, of the ancient world. You know, there's the story of Dion. You know, you have all again, you have all these sort of comparative mythology things. Where you have, you know, you have the story of Dionysus, who's sort of this god who gets killed by his worshippers, uh, versus the story of Christ. And uh, they're they're sort of parallel stories, but um, you know, there are differences of perspective. Where you know, Christ is innocent, the community is guilty, and Dionysus, it's 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 just this uh, this wonderful pagan ritual, and it's uh, you know, it's, it's the manias. Just this this wonderful expression of, of humanity, um, and uh, and and so uh, Nietzsche would have said, you know, that yeah, Dionysus was somehow life affirming, and Christ was life denying. So they had, and he yeah, he he saw a lot of it, but he just uh, put the moral valence very very. Didn't he sign his letters Dionysus sometimes, um, and sometimes the crucified one? So well, at the very end, when Nietzsche went insane. Uh, he, he finally saw that Dionysus and the crucified were the same. Hmm. And so I think it was his very last letter just before he went insane that he signed the crucified. And so we can have some hope maybe for may, maybe that's what what finally drove him mad was when he realized they were they were in some sense the same. And that uh, and of course, of course, you know, Nietzsche, tr in some sense, you know, tried to turn himself into into someone who was crucified you know, maybe he. You know, this is probably not not totally correct history, but maybe maybe he intentionally went insane so that he could, you know, he could become elevated in in this way. Something like that happened too. Well, yeah, in some ways he's anticipating the victim culture. So let let me fill in some blanks. You know, in the ancient world, you have these victims. They're not identified as victims. Um, they're evil. Um, they, you know, he slept with his mother. Uh, he killed his father. Um, that's why he deserved to die. And then the social order is built on these human sacrifices. And then along comes the gospel accounts, and it's the first ancient literature that acknowledges the true story, which is that the victim was innocent, not guilty. Um, and then as that story is told throughout history, you just suggested and Gerard did, anytime somebody's picking up the stone to throw it at somebody, they stop for If they've heard that story, they say, well, maybe this is like that Jesus story. Maybe this victim is innocent. So the ability to create order by killing an outsider is weakened. And eventually in the modern world, we essentially just have that concern for the victim, no forgiveness. We have the mob says victim, 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 and then there's competition and there's victim Olympics. 
but we don't actually kill anybody, so we can't get the pagan order. We don't forgive, so we can't get the Christian order. And that's essentially what progressive woke mobism is. is this, uh, yeah, there, 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 there are many different ways this has worked its way out in modernity. So there's um, certainly, um, if you think of it as almost like a drug, because, you know, the, the Greek word for, um, there were the, these uh, people called pharmakoi, the same root as pharma, pharmacy. And they were sort of kept in reserve. And if there was a crisis in Athens, you'd bring these people out and parade them through the streets and then kill them. And so it was, it was, it was, like, um, it was like this almost medical formula for restoring order to the community. And uh, the, uh, these people had the same, same root. And, uh, and so if you think of scapegoating as, um, as a kind of drug, um, but that only works when you don't know how it works. So, uh, you know, there's some problems in the village. Nobody's getting along. We're going to identify uh, this woman as a witch and um, and kill her. Um, you know that can be socially efficacious only if you don't know what you're doing. Um, and then as you know what you're doing, um, yeah, the, the the basic thing that happens is it doesn't quite work anymore. But uh, but but one kind of thing you can you can try to do is just increase the dosage of of the drug and um, you know multiply the number of victims and. Uh, Girard saw the uh, the big totalitarian movements of the of the twentieth century, you know, fascism and communism, as um, as these um, attempts to uh, turn the human community in on itself and to get uh, to increase the dosage. And maybe if you had millions of victims, you could get the old formula to work again. One victim's not enough. It needs to be six million Jews and four or, million. It was never Poles enough. It was never enough. enough. Because it's a dr if it's a drug. There's, it's never enough, right? You develop. There are ways in which you know fascism and communism were quite similar, and I think you know, um, and uh, I, I tend to think people often, you know, on the left, sort of, you know, um, make them more different than they were. But but one difference that I, I do think is interesting between the two is that fascism was sort of an attempt to go back to the past, and it was you know it was to say you know the victim the historical victims really were guilty you know the, the, the homosexuals the disabled people the jews the you know and and and, and um whereas um the uh whereas you can think of communism as actually sort of um more modern sort of hyper modern and in some sense uh this may be a confusing word you know almost uh a form of ultra christianity where it's it's we're going to take the historical victims is real, and we're going to victimize the victimizers. And so we're going to go after the aristocrats, the capitalists, the landlords, um, you know, all these sorts of people who were historically victimized, and we're going to turn them into victims. We're going to scapegoat the scapegoaters. We're going to scapegoat the scapegoaters. And, um, and in this sort of vaguely, you know, in this, in this powerfully Christian world, that's, that's, that's actually the much stronger move. And in some sense, that's the more dangerous one. You know, if you, if you say, you know, take the Middle Ages, where uh, where people would have said that the second most important attribute of Christ after his divinity was was his poverty. And if you saw a, a beggar on the street, it might be Christ in disguise, and you would be held to account at the last judgment for how you treated that person. Um, and then, you know, in some sense, you could think of, you know, even the even the forerunners of like Tolstoy, all the sort of forerunners of, of, of communism sort of weaponize this. And, you know, we are going to be more Christian than the Christians. You know, the, the 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 poor shall inherit the earth, but we're gonna we're gonna have a violent revolution and 
um, the proletariat will get it in the here and now, and and uh, and uh, it, you know, it's even though you know, on, on on a philosophical level, of course, you know, Marxism isn't you know materialist, atheistic type of philosophy. On a on sort of a the the, the sort of ethical moral valence uh, always comes from saying something like the Christians aren't Christian enough, and we need to be, you know, we need to be even more more Christian than the Christians. And that's so it's it's power its power depends on a partial appeal to a distorted version of the gospel. Yes. Yes. But you know, um sorry you know, we're jumping all over the map here a little bit, but uh one one of the jump wherever you like one of the one of the gospel passages that Gerard always liked to refer to was uh the curses against the Pharisees, where mm-hmm. the Pharisees were were these uh people who set were saying that if they lived in the time of the prophets they would have honored them. Um, but somehow, the fact that they said that suggested the opposite was true. They thought they thought they were better than other people, and as a result, they didn't realize how they were in the same. They were acting just like the people who were going to persecute the prophets, and then um, and then when they um, and they were about to do to Christ what their forefathers had done to to the prophets, and so somehow, in claiming that they were better than the people who had come before them, they were. Just proving they were going to repeat things in this in this uh, in this in this cycle of violence and Gerard so by only, emphasizing their discontinuity with the past, they inadvertently put themselves in... preserve the continuity. Yes, exactly, because they won't let the text read them. Starting off, you know where we were exactly right? going right back to the yeah. beginning. Exactly, and Gerard thought so. We have you know the two parallels in you know in the past, the time of the prophets, the present for the Pharisees, where Christ is about to be killed. But Gerard thought that this was also a prophecy about the future, and um, it, it happened in a way in medieval uh, Christianity where uh, um, anti-Semitism was justified because the Jews had killed Christ, and the conceit was that if we'd lived in the time of Christ, we would not have been like the Jews who killed him. And so um, there's a way in which medieval anti-Semitism, uh, where you're saying you were better than the people um, who'd lived in the time of Christ, you were more Christian than they were. And, the, and then they killed Jews. And right. then you somehow, in some way, you repeated the cycle. And then, of course, Gerard would have extended it, this also to the 20th and 21st century, where, let's say, atheist leftism, atheist liberalism, atheistic communism, uh, the conceit, the moral conceit is we're better than the people who lived in the Middle Ages. And if we'd lived in their time, we would have been so much more wonderful and so much more tolerant, and uh, and when people say this stuff, you should be you should be very skeptical because almost a tell that the opposite is is um, is, is is true. And then this this is of course dramatically was dramatically true of something like uh, communist movements in the in, you know in the twentieth century. But there probably are you know are versions of this with uh, with a lot of the phenomena that sort of get broadly labeled under political correctness in one form or another. But in this particular case, because we're a gospel-haunted culture, we at least are not to the point where we, we, we don't kill people. So we don't reestablish the order. So it just keeps going and going and going. And I, you know, I, I don't know if it's – a lot of books say that they're Rene Girard's last book, but battling to the end might be, right? Um, he talks about how this just keeps going. And we keep having this, these rivalries. Who's the victim? Um, oh, no, I'm the victim. No, you're the victim. And then we're going to well, you know, have this. Well, uh, it's both. It's, uh, you know, there is, 
there is a dimension of late modernity where um, it's potentially, um, it's, yeah, we, we sort of know too much and we can't motivate ourselves to, to, to really kill people in certain contexts. You know, in other contexts, obviously you have the totalitarian catastrophes, which, where people didn't seem to have that problem. Um, and, um, you know, Girard would, would argue that there's actually something, you know, latently apocalyptic about late modernity and, um, and that, uh, and that perhaps this was this somehow, somehow related to the, the apocalyptic prophecies of, of the Bible where, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, and, and, and Girard saw the prophecies of the Christian apocalypse, not as something that should be read mystically, but as an almost scientific prediction of what humans would do to themselves in a world that had been informed by Christianity, but which had not, uh, you know, not fully taken the Christian message to heart. Because if, you know, if you were informed by Christianity, you know, um, certain forms of scapegoating wouldn't work. You couldn't blame human causes. You would start looking for natural causes. You know, if the Jews or the witches didn't cause the plague, maybe you would look under a microscope and gradually figure out it was a bacteria that caused it. And, and so there would be this sort of this, so even uh, the whole history of science can be seen as a byproduct of what happens in a world where certain uh, crude forms of scapegoating work less and less well. So this is the, this is the idea I've heard you say in Girard that we didn't stop burning witches because we invented science. We invented science because we stopped burning witches. And that seems, that seems correct to me as, a, as just a matter of history. Like, you know, in the 18th century, we didn't, there was no comprehensive scientific theory that witchcraft was impossible. You know, you can still go to a bookstore in Berkeley and get a book on how to be a witch. And so we still haven't, you know, proven that something like this is impossible or that maybe it was a long lost art or something like this. But, uh, but we know that the witches were innocent. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing because, you know, you, you, had, you had trials. You know, in some cases they produced the contract the witch had signed with the devil. And we're sitting here, you know, 400 years later and saying, these trials um, were kangaroo courts, and uh, they were not, they were travesties of justice. And uh, and Gerard would claim this is again is sort of another way that the the revelation is is, is working its way out. But um, so we have a reverse witch hunting now. Let me just come back to the I'm sorry, go ahead. the other point. Um, yeah, go ahead. Gerard would have argued though that um, there was a dimension of this where things had the potential to spiral out of control. That there was you know a a potential for um, limitless violence and that the sort of conquest of nature, um, you know, Gerard was focused on nuclear weapons, but there certainly are a number of other ways in which science or technology are potentially um, limitless in their, in their violence. And um, perhaps in, in the post-1945 world, you know, the, we're always living in the end times for Christianity, but perhaps post-1945, there's some sense in which that's that's more true than it was in the in the 19th centuries that went um, that went before, um, and uh, and so yeah. So if you fast forward to some place like 2021 um, in, the, in the United States, uh, there's one level in which you can analyze it where it's uh, all these sort of super dysfunctional, chronic relationships. It, it never it rarely gets acute. You have um, you have crazy wars on Twitter. It normally doesn't lead to actual scapegoating. Twitter or, doesn't have an execution button. 
So we can't actually end it by killing somebody. We, we can cancel them, and that's. But if you cancel them, they just become conservative celebrities. So you haven't really killed yeah, them. Yeah, it's, and it's, the it's war sort of goes complicated. On. You know, I think there are, right. but but it's it's um it's it's from an archaic perspective. There's one way in which it's it's shockingly nonviolent, but but there's always a thought that um it can snowball. There is, in theory, no limit to it, and so I think people Gerard would also have felt that people weren't entirely wrong. To, to somehow feel the sense that the violence was, you know, was potentially was potentially unlimited because uh, the sort of mimetic aspect of Gerard is these things do have the potential to snowball, you know, out of control like crazy. So, so mimetic is imitative, imitative. right? Just to fill it, fill that in yes. for people. Um, and Gerard was concerned about mimetic rivalry, which is. We imitate other people and are rivals with them rather than imitating Christ, yeah. uh, who's not the rival. Like in some ways, there's the Steven Pinker view of our world where it's just gotten you know less and less violent, and you look at you know the number of murders and all these things. And if you believe the statistics, you know we're at a you know at an all-time low in in relative violence. But this can't be the full story. And we also have ten thousand nuclear weapons, and um, and you know. Um, the potential violence seems seems greater than ever, and and there's there's some sense in which we're in this strange intermediate zone where you know um, uh, we are perhaps not insane enough to push the nuclear button and yeah. go all the yeah. way to limitless violence, but we're not sane enough to embrace the gospel wholeheartedly and reject violence in all its form, and so we're in this sort of in between zone of of what Gerard would call like sick revenge, where you know we're still we still think we should be enacting revenge, but we don't really believe in it, and it just sort of uh, keeps keeps going like this, and we we don't know yet whether it's going to end in the apocalypse or the kingdom of God. Okay, so that's a good point. We don't know yet because in in reading some of this stuff, one can get the impression that it's inevitable, um, and a big theme for you is that we do have agency over the future, right? Um, definitism. Um, not, as you say, we don't just you know eat popcorn and watch what unfolds. We're participating in it, and we're not, we don't have a nanke. We don't, we don't have a fate, which we're just being dragged to. Or maybe, maybe we do. I, I'd, be, I'd, I'd like to hear you speak to this. Can we avoid that apocalyptic scenario where we just we the sick revenge we're not Christian enough to forgive but we're not pagan enough to kill and tell a lie so we just kind of go on and maybe that gets to the point where it's dueling nuclear powers rather than Trump versus CNN um, which is at this point just sort of rhetorically violent it, does that have to happen or is there an off ramp you know I well I, I you know the the cosmic question is always it is always hard it it seems ambiguous. You know, in in um, Christianity, even though if you had to, if you had to take a side, you'd say that it it, it certainly feels like um, the apocalyptic ending is more likely. Um, and so, you know, there was Gerard would have argued that there was an off ramp for the Jews in the time of Christ, and if they had all followed Christ, you would have had the kingdom of heaven. Could have happened then and there, and um, and in a similar way, if you know, at the point where the whole world has heard the gospel message, if it were to embrace it, there could be an off ramp, 
and then um, and in some sense it is a question of, of human agency and human free will um, and that's that's implicit in Girard but then there's also always this idea that um, probably it's 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 not what's going to happen although we're not sure uh, Girard always thought that you know, you have the haunting last question in, in the Gospel of Luke that Christ asks you know when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on earth? And um, and it's framed in a way where it could be, you, in one sense you could say it could be, could not be, could be either way, but uh, but certainly it, it seems suggestive that there won't be that much and that somehow Christianity will have, you know, there, there's an element of Christianity that, that predicts its own failure, that it predicts people will hear the message but then will will, will reject it, even though... Certainly, individually, they, they can choose otherwise. But I would say um, maybe another. These are all, you know, another another point on the on this question of the apocalypse. I've always thought is that uh, if one is too sanguine about it, that's probably a formula for it happening. So you know, if, if we're in a world where people are really worried about this stuff and really worried about how we need to change, maybe maybe something will happen. If, if um, the sort of Steven Pinker formula that, you know, um, or, you know, Kue, the new age thinker from the 1920s, who, who said that you just needed to tell yourself, you know, every day in every way I'm getting better and better. If you just said that, that would be enough. Hmm. Um, the, the sort of um, utopian new age formulas seem to me to be a recipe for apocalypse. And then, uh, and then maybe the only hope is, is, uh, is somehow the opposite to say, we are in this crazy apocalyptic situation, and um, and and maybe there's some hope that if we're aware of it, we we can get out. This is you know this is probably reading a little bit too much into Gerard, but I often think he vaguely thought of himself as like uh, Jonah going to Nineveh, where it's like you know announcing you know the city is about to be destroyed, right? And it gets a stay of execution. It gets but a... then when they believe it's going to be destroyed, they repent, and then that that paradoxically leads to a stay of execution. Right, and then historians are always puzzled about why does Assyria suddenly become so prosperous and stable around this time? Well, they believed Jonah, and there was they stopped burning witches, so they maybe got some science, but then they became, as you say, sanguine about it. By the way, interesting choice of words, sanguinate, blood. Um, so, but we're not sanguine right now. Do you agree with that? We are probably, well, it's 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 it's, it's always impossible to sort of have a, perfectly accurate reading of one's one's time. I think there are, you know, there certainly are ways in which it feels like some things are intense. There are some ways in which people are worried. There are a lot of ways in which uh, these things are, it seems to be very, very poorly articulated. Um, and then, um, so I, I, I don't know, it's, 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 it's always very, you know, I, I don't think it's impossible to have a feel for what's going on. And, you know, from, from my perspective, it seems that we have you know this um, this crazy—I wouldn't call, say quite Marxist, but uh, this crazy form of political correctness. That's uh, this this insane deformation of Christianity, and it's it's too political, and it's it's not sanguine. It's very unhealthy. It might also be that you know so much of it is you know virtue signaling, LARPing. It's all like some video game people think they're playing. So we talk apocalyptically, but we do it from a, from a place of safety. It's, it's, it's the least serious we've ever been. Right. So everyone says everything's terrible and it's about to blow up, but we really, it's a game. We feel safe, right? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, one of my, one of my colleagues, you know, his, his dad, uh, sort of this 
Tea Party baby boomer a decade ago, and it was, you know, Obama was a communist who was going to destroy the country. And you ask the dad, so what are you doing? It's, well, I'm just playing golf. And, you know, are, are, you, are you going around? <laughs> so do you really believe that stuff, right? I mean, that's a great point. Yeah. You'd be acting in a very different way. And, uh, and there's probably, and that's, that's, that's the ambiguity I, I, I also find right now, you know, is, is AOC, is she really a communist revolutionary or is she just, uh, Fox News construct that's like some some mirror image of the uh, the um, the bad uh, the people in silly costumes that stormed the Capitol on January six. So we're we're maybe not worried enough. Therefore, we should be worried. In essence, you're saying if we're worried about apocalypse, then apocalypse is less likely. Uh, if we're not worried about it, then it's more likely. And at this point, maybe a dominant cultural motif is we're pretending to be worried about it. But if you look at our actions, we're not really that concerned at all. I mean, is that basically an that would be, sum up? Yes. And with the big qualifier that I think it's always unbelievably hard to, to really know what's what's going on in our in our culture. Because you're in it. All these things can be qualified in all these ways. Even if we talk just about the nuclear, the nuclear standoff. You know, it was it was really crazy from the 50s to the 80s. And there was probably something very dangerous about the brinksmanship of Kennedy or maybe even of Reagan at the end. Um, but the brinksmanship worked because people were scared. And and uh, and uh, and then the last 30 years, we still have nuclear weapons. And but it's, it's a very strange way how this deterrent works. If you take something like um you know, the totalitarian nightmare that is North Korea. And, you know, that country should not be allowed to have nuclear weapons. Any rational calculation says, you know, we should have just bombed them in 1994 right away. And um, and instead we treat it as a sort of cartoon villain where, you know, they, they send videos of um, nuking the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. They produce videos doing that. And, um, and you know, if we took them seriously, we would we would escalate. By, by not taking them seriously, we, we don't escalate. Although um, on some level, from a nuclear deterrence theory, it, it, sound, it, it feels like that shouldn't be able to work at all. So, uh, so I think we're just in a very, very strange zone the last 30 years. So does the domestic political apocalypticism, is that to some degree a distraction from the thing that could really destroy? No one's talking about nuclear missiles anymore. I mean, it's just not part of the discussion, but some conservative gets canceled or some conservative says, oh, look, January 6th was terrible, but it wasn't a threat to the world. Uh, and so CNN can just talk about that all day and Fox News can talk about AOC all day. And there's a pantomime to it. And nobody, we haven't destroyed any, any nuclear missiles. We The, the globe is still yeah, it's, threatened it's, by this stuff. It's pro There probably are, you know, there probably are a number of other technologies that are, you know, quite dangerous. I mean, there's there's a question about AI. Bio-war, maybe? Or, you know, a, a, I, you know the, the uncomfortable thing I always like to point about artificial intelligence is that it should be thought of as primarily a military technology that will be used to kill people on the other side. And, um, and that you know it's um, and that you know maybe you need to have autonomous weapon systems that can work on their own because um, they'll be faster. It, it can even be justified as a humanitarian thing since you know our own soldiers won't be in the line of fire or something like that. But um, but it seems at least potentially very very dangerous. And so I think there are yeah there are sort of a number of of these dimensions like this that we're we're certainly we're certainly not 
not talking about. And uh, again, my my read on on the culture would would be that uh, that um, a lot of it is just intention redirection. You know, if you pay attention to things, you can think about them, you can change them, you can do things about them, and probably the main way in which we um, we don't improve ourselves or change ourselves is that we are in this like semi-hypnotic trance where it's this magic show where we're always paying attention to you know to um to, to something that's really just a silly sideshow and, and the main thing is is um is, is not seeing i'd like to talk more in the future if you're willing about what that off-ramp about it is there a path toward definite optimism, to use the phrase from your book. So maybe we can kind of set up now, because this is a little scary. And if you stop there, there's a little bit of hopelessness, right? But of course, you're not hopeless. You believe in human agency. Yes. So maybe a, maybe a next conversation is what does an off-ramp look like? And I don't know that you know or I know, Yes. but is it at least worth talking about it and trying to figure out what an off-ramp, what the imitation of Christ might look like as an off-ramp? So I hope you can come back and talk about that. Let's do that. Peter, always a pleasure. I always learn so much. Thank you. Thank you. To be continued. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.